So there is a, a pastor named Jesse Duplantis, who's part of something called JDM Ministries International in Louisiana. Apparently, this ministry reaches about 750,000 people. I think at the church itself, there's maybe, um, I think, something like 20,000 people. And he was preaching recently, and he asked his congregation to finance a Falcon 7X for him, which is a $54 million private plane. This was the fourth private plane that he asked his congregation for. And he added, he was hesitant to uh, purchase it at first, but God told him, I didn't ask you to pay for it. I asked you to believe for it. And he also mentioned, if Jesus arrived today, he wouldn't arrive on a donkey. He would arrive apparently on this private plane that is necessary so that he can go anywhere. The reason he needs this plane, this particular plane, is so that he can go anywhere in the world uh, without stopping, you know, uninterrupted. Uh, And this is not a unique story, actually. Sadly, in 2015, Creflo Dollar, who's another pastor in a suburban Atlanta church, He asked for a new Gulfstream G650, and um, he said, if I want to believe God for a $65 million plane, you cannot stop me. He wanted a new one, but uh, uh, alas, they had to settle for a used one. Now, uh, these men are proponents of what's called the prosperity gospel. Uh, The prosperity gospel is a doctrine that teaches God has promised his people prosperity, particularly in the forms of health, wealth, happiness in this life if God's people take the necessary steps to claim it. Now, this is a uniquely American creation, the, the, what's called the prosperity gospel or the health wealth gospel. Um, sadly, we have exported it to all over the world. So it started in America, but we've taken this gospel, this quote-unquote gospel, all over the world, and they use... This is, this is a quote from one of Creflo Dollar's Bible studies. He says, the Bible says that wealth is stored up for the righteous. And he takes some passages out of context, Proverbs 13, 22, for example. He says, however, it will remain stored up until you claim it. Therefore, claim it now. You possess the ability to seize and command wealth and riches to come to you. Exercise that power by speaking Sorry, I, I like trying not to laugh, but I, it's hard. Exercise that power by speaking faith-filled words daily and taking practical steps to eradicate debt. Like God, you can speak spiritual blessings into existence. Man, it's just, I want to say these words that I shouldn't say up here. Many people believe the prosperity gospel. Uh, in fact, there was, a, there was a poll taken a couple of years ago. Uh, 2017 poll cited in Christianity Today, 25% of Christians believe we have to do something to receive material blessing from God. So they do believe that God kind of pays you back. If you do righteous things, God will pay you back with money. Uh, 40% said that their church taught that if they give to the church and charities, God will bless them in return. And 70% said that they believe 70% of Christians, well, you know, the, the term Christian is kind of fluid in a survey like this, but... 70% said they believed God wanted them to prosper financially. So I was thinking about this, and I thought about, you guys know, like, 
you know, hashtag like living my best life. Right? It's like, oh, you're living your best life or something. And it's funny because I don't know when that became a thing. Maybe some of you guys know. And, you know, people use it and I'll see it on like whatever Instagram or something. It's like, and I know like all millennial sayings, it's kind of a... Ironic a little bit, like it's, you know, the things, we, oh, the struggle is real, you know, stuff like that. It's not meant to be literal. It's kind of like jokey in a sense, but, you know, are at least self-aware. But it, what it reminded me most of actually was Joel Osteen because he wrote a book called Your Best Life Now. Like that's literally the title of the book. Joel Osteen, if you don't know, he's the pastor of Lakewood Church in Houston, which has 45,000 people. It's the biggest church in America almost 45,000 people. And he outlines how to live prosperously through faith and positive thinking. And I thought, now, okay, if I talk about stuff like that, right, like you guys laugh. And you should, obviously, because it's ridiculous, right? Like if I ever came up here and said, guys, you know, I was really praying about it. And God was like, Joe, you need a plane, right? Like you need a private jet and the church needs to finance it for you. I would hope that, you know, you guys would stone me or something, you know, maybe not to death, but, you know, at least throw something or kick me out and excommunicate me and never let me come back here and come to this, you know, come to preach because that is... That is ridiculous and totally unbiblical and not gospel at all. But at the same time, what do we want? You know, like maybe you're not praying to Jesus for a private plane. I hope you're not. But the truth is Christians in our culture do want to prosper, right? Like, we want to be successful in business. We want good health for ourselves and our families. We want money so we can enjoy life and have adventures and travel frequently and eat well and drink well and sleep well and retire early. Yes, the notion of praying for a private plane maybe is funny and ridiculous, but are we really that different? And I, I can't answer that for each of us, but I think it's a question that we should ask ourselves what makes us different from them? Is it just that we're not big and we don't have a lot of people and we're not generating that kind of money, those multi-millions of dollars? If we're not here just to learn how to prosper, then what are we here to do? Why does the church exist Now, I'll give you the point for today's message again so that if you're really tired, you can just take a nap after this. We're in this gospel-centered series, right? Very simple today. Gospel-centered church, a gospel-centered church is always on mission, period. A gospel-centered church is always on mission. Now, we've talked about the past couple weeks, the throne of God in heaven from Revelation 4 and 5, right? That throne that's at the center of all reality. Last week, we talked about what it is to be a creature of the word. Well, a church that lives before the throne of God at the center of all reality and a church that lives as a creature of the word 
is always on mission. That's what those things produce. Right? And I debated when I was outlining this series, should I do this one here? Because a lot of times what we do is we do mission last. Because we say, like, okay, it's this, and then it's, you know, heart stuff, and then it's community stuff, and then it's service, and then mission is at the end. But I think that's part of how we get things mixed up, because we think all those things precede mission. But they don't. A gospel-centered church. When you know Jesus, and when you have the word, and when you are receiving this from God, we are automatic, what we are immediately sent out to is mission. We're going to talk, so what we'll we'll talk about is, you know, why? Why must we be that? Why must we be always on mission? What does it mean? How do we do it? Okay? Why? What does it mean? How do we do it? That's what we're going to be looking at today. And so if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 through 4. We'll actually read through, well, we'll we'll do this part first, and then we're going to be, you know, we'll jump to some other passages too. Genesis chapter 12, we'll start in verse 1. This is God's word, and it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old years old when he departed from Haran. Now, this is a significant missiological passage. It's often called kind of the Great Commission of the Old Testament. Now, however, this is also one of the primary passages that is used when preaching the prosperity gospel, right? Because you look at it and you see, well, what is it? Well, God is blessing Abram, and God is promising Abram a blessing. He's promising him to make his name great. He's promising him a uh, kind of a land and a nation, a people. He's going to turn them into a people. So the prosperity gospel preaches God's purpose for you, God's purpose for you is to physically and financially and emotionally and uh, relationally bless you. That's what God's purpose for you is, to receive blessing from him. They look at this passage, they say that's the purpose. Now a lot of times I think we look at the passage, we see the same thing. Isn't that the purpose? Isn't that what God is doing here? He is blessing Abram. Now, what's really happening in this text? What does God do for Abram? Now, first of all, God doesn't bless Abram. He calls him to blessing. He doesn't say, okay, Abram, here's all this stuff. I'm just going to give it to you in your land. No, he calls him to something. He says, I want you to leave your land. I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave, to leave everything that's comfortable about your life right now, your entire family, everything that has come before, probably your property there, probably your inheritance there, whatever you have there, you're going to leave it. That's what I'm calling you to. 
Now, he doesn't say, I have blessed you. He says, I will bless you. And then he says, so that, right, in verse 2, it says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So that, that kind of language, so that, that indicates the purpose, right? If he said, I will make you into a blessing so that you will be blessed, then what's the purpose? To be blessed. If he says, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing, what's the purpose? To be a blessing. What is God's purpose in Abram? To be a blessing, to make him into a blessing. Abram wasn't blessed into mission. He was called into blessing. Right? He didn't, he didn't, God just didn't like give him all this stuff and then say, now you have so much stuff, so now you can give it away. No, he says, I'm going to call you into it. Here's what you got to do. Have faith and obedience. That is the one thing about Abram, in fact, that's commended throughout Scripture. Why is Abram, you know, why is he an important figure in the Bible? Because he's the father of faith. Because he had faith and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. God's blessing to us, or I should say, I'm sorry, God's purpose for us is not just to be blessed. Right? God's mission for us in life is not just to be blessed. Now, you might think that you already knew that, but think about the way that you live your life. What is the purpose of your life? Is it to do something for God or is it to receive something from God? God doesn't just dispense grace, in, you know, to us. He calls us into his grace. Remember when Jesus called his disciples? Do you know what he said? Come follow me and you'll receive incredible blessing. Right? Some of you guys are like, is that what it says? I don't know. <laughs> it's not what it says. It says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Because they're fishermen. Right. So it's, that's a play on their their jobs. But he's saying, but he's saying, look, come follow me and this will become your purpose. Do you know why? Because they weren't looking for a handout. They were looking for a purpose. What does God have for you today? You know, when you come to church or when you open the Bible and you think, what does God have for you today? What does God have for me today? Are you thinking about something to receive are you thinking about what can God do for me? Or are you thinking, what does God have for me to do? God's purpose is not just to bless you, but to make you into a blessing. And God is always on that mission. Now let's, let's read on here. Um. Verse 5, it says, And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions, and they had gathered, that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. 
Okay, so, you know, what does it mean to be always on mission? It means to, to always be a blessing, right? That's what God is doing in us. Now, so we have to ask the question, though, if it's to always be a blessing, then what is the blessing? Like, what is the, what is the actual blessing? Right? When the Bible talks about being blessed, what is it talking about? Is it talking about financial blessing? Is it talking about lineage? Is it talking about property? Is it talking about, you know, what's, what is it that was promised to Abram? You know, what's happening here? So it can't be that what is promised to Abram from God is the land and, you know, the family and the property because Abram actually doesn't enter the land, right? And I, actually, if you look right here, it's, God says, okay, come, you know, leave your land, right? Get up, gather, you know, just really it's, it's Lot, right, and his wife, and he's saying, okay, come out um, and just go to this land that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to give you that land. So they go to the land, and then when they get there, it says the Canaanites are living there. So Abram doesn't go settle there. He just goes through it. Right? So he, he comes to the land. The Canaanites are there. And then when he gets there, God says, I'm going to give this land to your offspring, and then he just, you know, Abram builds an altar to God. Now, it, it can't be the land. It can't be the family. You know, what is the blessing, the way that God wanted to bless all of the families of the earth through Abram? Well, we find out in Galatians 3, right? It says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So God's whole mission, right? God is on mission from the beginning of the Bible, right? From the beginning of the Bible. You look at Genesis 1, he creates everything. And then at the end of chapter 1, he creates man. Man is created in his image. He says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So he creates everything in Genesis 1. And then at the end of Genesis 1, he says, here's your mission. Go and spread my glory to all the earth. Because you, man and woman, you are the only ones created in the image and likeness of God. None of the other create none, none of all of the, other, the rest of creation has that. You don't have the image and likeness of God imprinted onto you. But human beings, people do. Right? And he says, So I want you to go fill the earth, multiply, right? Have kids, fill the earth, subdue it so that all creation knows. So you're, my rep you're the representatives of my glory over all of creation. You'll have dominion over all of creation. Right? And then Genesis, you know, later in Genesis, everything goes bad. Right? People get increasingly evil all the time. You know, sin enters the world, obviously, and then Cain and Abel, and then, you know, Lamech, and it just gets bad until the time of Noah, when God's like, okay, now I'm just going to wipe out everybody except for Noah and his family, and I'm going to start over. And at the end of the, whole, the flood, they come out, and then Genesis 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He says, go, spread my glory. Right? And it, it doesn't happen. And so God has to call Abram. He says, okay, I'm gonna, this isn't working. I'm going to call you out, and I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you a people. I'm going to make your family into this nation, and this is going to be the way that I'm going to spread my glory. 
to all of the earth. So in the Old Testament, you have a what's called a come and see religion. Okay, you know, the time of in the time of Solomon, you know, Solomon was the wisest king, right? The Queen of Sheba travels to Jerusalem and she heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord. First Kings ten. Solomon answers all of her questions. He shows his wisdom. He shows the splendor, the majesty of God's kingdom, right? And then she goes back. She leaves. She goes back to her own people. And she says, wow, you know, God is great. In the New Testament, we have something different. We have a go-and-tell religion because of Jesus. So now it's not, it's not located in one place, right? There's not a nation or a city or a temple that, that holds the presence of God, where people have to come to see it because of Jesus, because Jesus died for all sinners everywhere, because anyone can have access to Jesus if we have faith, if we confess, because all of us have the spirit of Jesus, the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God in us, indwelling in us. We can go anywhere. It is our mission to do that. Uh, this is Acts 1.8. It says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is... Now, Jude Jerusalem was where they were, and then Judea was the kind of bigger region, and then Samaria is the neighboring region, and then they say to the ends of the earth. So what he's saying is, and this is what happens in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit comes. They immediately start witnessing to the glory of God. They start bearing witness to the glory of God. They say, okay, this is who Jesus was, right? They take the gospel. They say, this is what happened. He came. He lived. He died. He rose again from the dead. And if you have faith, if you confess your sin, if you come to him, you can have eternal life. And they take that message, they spread it all throughout the city. Then they go to the next city. Then they go to the greater region. Then they go to the next region. Then they go to the ends of the earth. This is First uh, Peter 2. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's who you are. For what purpose? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his Marvelous light. Okay, what does it mean to be always on mission? It means to be a living witness to God's glory through the gospel and to raise up others to do the same. To be a living witness, it means everything you do at any time, anywhere, is to be a living witness. The purpose, the purpose of your life is to be a living witness of God's glory through the gospel, and to raise up other people to do the same, to be a living witness so that they can raise up other people, so that they can raise up other people. This has to be what we're about all the time. Okay. How do we do it? So I'm going to give you three things, okay? Well, uh, well, I'll tell you up front. Swim in the gospel. Embrace discomfort. And uh, go to where the gospel isn't. Swim in the gospel, embrace discomfort, go to where the gospel isn't. Okay. First thing, swim in the gospel. I, I mentioned this last week. The gospel is not the diving board we jump from. It's the pool that we swim in. 
right? It's not the entrance, right? It's not the doorway to your house. It's the living room. It is the place you live, the space you occupy. It is where you dwell, right? So we can never think of the gospel as just uh, a way, an entry point for people into Christianity to live in the God, to know the gospel, to have the gospel deepen into our hearts so that it permeates every facet of our lives. That is what it is to be a Christian. Now, if you swim in the gospel, you will testify to the power of the gospel. That the primary blessing that God gave to the earth was not money. It was neither health nor wealth. It was not perfect relationships or balanced lives. It was not property or people. The blessing that God gives to us is his precious, beloved, only son, Jesus. That's the blessing. The gift of God is himself. Now, it takes Abraham, well, Abraham, I said that weird, Abram, (laughs) who becomes Abraham, his name changes, Um, It takes him over 30 years to learn this when he's over 100, right? He's called when he's 75. And then later on, when he's 100-something, it it takes 25 years just for Isaac to be born, the child of the promise. So God promises him something. He says, I'm going to give you you offspring. He says, I'm going to give you, like, generations as much as the sand on the seashore, right? As much as the stars in the sky, and it takes him 25 years to have one kid. To have one kid. Right? Well, he has one kid illegitimately with his concubine. You know, because he's like, is God ever going to do this? And then his wife is like, forget it. Just sleep with Hagar and just like have a kid with her because I'm barren. And then he just does it because he's a dummy. You know, and so they, and then they have this other kid. And then, and then Sarah gets mad and she like sends her away with Ishmael, the other kid. Right? The illegitimate son. And this you know, all this stuff is covered in Galatians too, so you guys can look at that. But uh, it takes him 25 years to receive the child of promise. 25 years, 100 years old. 75 years old when he's called. 100 years old when the first part of God's grand promise is, is given to him, is revealed to him. You know, he dies at 175. Now, Abram, you know, Genesis 22, he has to sacrifice his son, right? That's what God calls him to sacrifice Isaac on the mountain. He doesn't, at the last minute, right? He doesn't have to do it because God says, I'll provide. And he provides the ram. This is all symbolic of Jesus coming thousands of years later, who's going to be that sacrifice on that mountain. But what Abram learns, it takes him all that time. But when he's able to give up his son Isaac on the mountain, like when he's willing to do it, do you know what he learns? He thinks back to when he was 75. And he realizes what God offered him was not prosperity. It was not a great land. It was not a big family. Because to that point, he had no land. And he had one kid. So he knew that the past, you know, 30-some-odd, 30 to 40 years of his life were not a waste because what God was giving him, the blessing that God was giving him, was offering to him, was a lifelong relationship with himself to walk with him in faith. That was what God gave him. 
And that promise, the promise that God was making to all his people for all time was not to give them big families and properties. Nor was he offering the absence of financial pressures or physical sickness or mental struggles or emotional instability. That's not what he offers us. He offers us, through that promise to Abraham, which has been fulfilled in Christ, himself. He offers us himself to walk with him in faith, to know his grace and love. This is what I find tragic about the the prosperity gospel. Because I think some of us have this mentality sometimes. Like I, I've said things to this effect before, in fact. Um, like, the prosperity gospel's wrong, but it'd be pretty sweet to have a plane, though, right? Like, like the prosperity gospel is for sure wrong, but, you know, like, I remember, you know, back when I was a young foolish pastor. I'm still relatively young, but you know, when I was younger and more foolish, um, cause I'm still relatively foolish too. Uh, you know, like, like one of my, I remember when I was a, you know, I was pastoring college students and this one college student would always say to me like, Hey, just do like, just do prosperity gospel for like a year, you know, and like, just like make money and then you could use it for the kingdom, you know, which is, <laughs> which is, you know, obviously he's, he's joking, right? Obviously, but I, it makes me wonder, right? Like, do we, do we not see how that notion, even just that notion, completely cheapens the, the real gospel? Like, do, do we see that? Like, to even, like, to insult Jesus by comparing him to having a house or, or a car or a plane or some kind of extravagant wealth. Like, don't, don't insult Jesus, right? Don't insult Jesus by putting him on the level of a job or a relationship. That, don't you see that if you do that, then that completely cheapens the surpassing treasure that Jesus is. Like, then we're doing something. Like, if we think it's just like having a, but Jesus is better than having a plane. No, he's not, you're not better than having, it's not in the same realm. It's not in the same stratosphere. Having a job or a plane or family or like good relationships or, you know, whatever, physical health. Like those things are not in the same realm as Jesus. Jesus is somewhere else completely. The true tragedy of the prosperity gospel is not that people are being deceived out of their money. It's that they're being denied the true riches of knowing Jesus. But do we recognize that? Do we think, oh, it's just sad that those people are losing their money? It's sad that they're paying into something that's never going to pay out. Or do we think that is an eternal tragedy and horrible and it, and it, it gives me a righteous anger because those people are denying them the true worth of Jesus When we swim in the gospel, we see Jesus as our surpassing treasure. The one thing you would never give up for any reason. The one thing you would sell everything else you have to get. When Christ is your surpassing treasure, anything that gets in his way, whether work or family or any relationship or anything, will be put in its proper place. 
swim in the gospel. Two, step into discomfort. You know, embrace discomfort. Step into discomfort. Two, make much of God's grace. Step into discomfort to make much of God's grace. So do you know what always gets in the way of God's mission? It's that people want to be comfortable. See, because God said, go and subdue the earth to Adam and Eve. But do you know what they did? They just chilled in the garden. They didn't want to leave. In fact, they chilled in the center of the garden, the one place that God said they shouldn't be. God created the whole world. Like, you guys know that, right? In Genesis 1, it's not, the Garden of Eden wasn't the only thing that existed on earth. It was just, it was their initial home. And God said, go out from here and fill and subdue the whole world. The world didn't grow, you know, since Genesis 1. Like, it wasn't like this big and then, oh, like today, you know, it's, it's this big now, right? And before, it only contained the Garden of Eden and then it grew and now we have like all the continents. No, the, the world was the same size when God created it. He only created two people, right? And they were just in one place. And he said, fill the earth, multiply, have kids, and fill, subdue this entire world. And they didn't. They just wanted to stay in the same place. Genesis 11, do you know what happens? Everybody on earth gets together and they say, let's build a giant tower, Tower of Babel. Let's make a name for ourselves. Remember God says in Genesis 9, after the flood, God says, go, fill the earth, multiply. Noah doesn't even go. He just chilled in his tent and he gets drunk. And then... They build a tower of Babel, and God's like, okay, this is not working. Acts 2 and Acts 4, right? These are passages that we love because it's like all the church, but the beginning of the church and that Christian fellowship, man, where everyone has everything in common, and they're meeting together every day. But you know what they're not doing? They're not taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so God, persecution. It's not until Stephen dies. It's not until persecution comes to Jerusalem that everyone, all the Christians scatter. And then they realize, like, oh, there's a mission. There's something we're supposed to be doing, not just coming here to be comfortable. Let me say this. This is just, I'm just being real, right? Like, let your notion of ideal community, let it be challenged. Like, you got to take that off the altar of whatever it's sitting on. And let that be challenged. Because our notion of community, when you think of community, like ideal community, your ideal community, what do you think of? And I'm just guessing, but you probably want it to be safe. You probably want it to be comfortable. You probably want it to be easy to share and to confess. You probably want to know everybody. You want everyone to know you. You want it to be, you want to feel loved. You want to feel affirmed. You want to feel secure. You want it to be probably also fun, enjoyable all the time. And that is not simply an unrealistic notion of community. It's a terrible one. Not simply because people can't do that. That's not the reason. The reason is such a community is completely without grace. See, that community will kill the notion of grace. It will become inward-looking, exclusive, judgmental. It can only become those things. 
Because there's no grace there. Because what you want is a community. You know what grace means, right? Grace means undeserved favor. But when we seek that kind of community, the, communi- the community that we want is one where everyone is preeminently deserving. Where people deserve my respect. Where people deserve honor. Where people deserve love. Where people deserve forgiveness. Where people deserve to be served. That's what you want. People who are worthy of those things from you. And where you are proven worthy of those things from other people. But grace, the notion upon which our community is to be built, is undeserved favor. It's those things given to people who don't deserve it. To love people who don't deserve love. To forgive people who don't deserve your forgiveness. To show kindness to people who don't deserve your kindness. Because that's what we received in Jesus. We don't deserve God's love. We didn't deserve God's grace or his kindness or his compassion. We didn't deserve for him to look at us in our pitiful state and say, I'm going to save you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to get you dressed. And I'm going to help you learn how to eat and how to walk and how to talk and how to have relationships. For us to be able to ever pay that forward, we have to be able to give grace to people who don't deserve it. To befriend people who don't deserve our friendship. I'll just say this real quick, too. Our goal as a church lest we be confused about it, is not to distinguish ourselves from other churches. That is a complete consumer idea, right? Because that only appeals to Christians, right? Somebody who goes to a church and then says, well, do they have this program or that? Do they have a good children's? How's the preaching? What's the worship like? That is 100% a consumer notion, right? And I'm not saying... People can't come for that. That's, you know, that's, of course, we'll embrace and be hospitable and love. But that's not our goal, right? I don't care about, like, I should say this. I don't want to care about that. I don't want to care about growing this church at all. I want to care about us growing the gospel, growing the kingdom of God, to view every other church as part of what we are doing in the world. And that is how we as Christians must think about our, our lives in this world. Expanding the kingdom of God by proclaiming the word of God, that will most certainly require us to step out of our comfort. Here's the final thing. Go to where the gospel isn't. Go to where the gospel isn't. Now, this is one of the hardest things for you know, pastors or leaders in the church to talk about. Because it means sometimes, you know, you have to go somewhere else. For us to be able to to do this, we have to give up plans, basically. That's just that's the most simple way to put it. Right? Like you have a plan for your life. 
You want it to go this certain way. You want to go to a certain school. You want to, you know, be with a certain, you know, person. I'm not saying you don't have to be with the person. <laughs> but, you know, it's like uh, you want to live somewhere. You, know, you want to do these. Like there's all these kind of certain things that we see, right, and things that we envision and things that we think about. But we have to be willing to, and I'm not saying we have to throw those things away or change them necessarily just for the sake of. But we have to put them up and ask ourselves, okay, does this advance the gospel or, or not? Um, I think it comes up against this, this notion that we have today that, um, well, okay, actually, I don't, I, I'm just going to say this. You're never going to find perfect balance in this life. Ever. Right? And I don't mean this to be a bad, like, I'm not saying this in a bad way. I'm saying it to free you from this insane notion that you can actually perfectly balance your life because you can't. Right? There, I, and today, especially, there's a sense that if anything in us is not quote unquote healthy, like, if I'm not 100% physically, emotionally, mentally, you know, everything, like 100% healthy in every single way, then I must correct it. And I, I'm not saying it's foolish or unwise to be good stewards of our bodies. and our, Of course, we should. But let me just say this. If I want to love my family well and pastor this church well, then I have to lose sleep sometimes. That's a reality. Right? Sometimes I have to not take a vacation. Sometimes I did not eat, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Sometimes I have to sacrifice buying something or going somewhere. That's just, that's just, that's, that's real. Right? Like if you want to live always on mission, you're going to have to lose sleep sometimes. You're going to have to forego vacation sometimes. You're going to have to sacrifice time and money and effort sometimes. Sometimes you're going to have to get on your knees and humbly pray, even though you're, like, really tired. Some of us will have to move and go to a foreign land. Some of us will have to die to get the gospel into places where people don't want it to be. Our physical and mental and emotional health is not guaranteed anywhere in scripture perfect relationships and communication and enough money and leisure time every year are not guaranteed anywhere in scripture the prosperity gospel promises such things the true gospel does not what's guaranteed in scripture is that those who follow christ will have to sacrifice they'll have to suffer and they'll be persecuted that is promised in scripture what's guaranteed in scripture is that god will absolutely protect and preserve us for as long as he wants us to pursue him and to make much of his glory and after that we'll die and when you die death will serve you because you'll finally get to see jesus face to face and then you will have perfect physical mental emotional health not to mention increasing joy for the rest of all of eternity that's that's what's promised in scripture abraham was a wanderer until he died. Did you know that? He never, ever settled down. He never settled into the land. He never bought a house. He never retired. The only land he ever owned was a cave where his wife was buried. That's it. And the only thing that left of him when he left this earth were those altars that he built to God. You know, when he went to, to Shechem and then he's at Mora and he's, he's at Bethel, he's, he's building these little altars. Those were the, that was the only architecture from him that remained on the earth 
after he departed it. Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery, and then he's wrongfully imprisoned for several years. Then he finally reunites with his brothers, you know, after like many, after decades, basically. And he forgives them. He says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Do you think these guys were 100%, like, they felt 100% secure, and they were completely, you know, mentally and emotionally stable in every single way? I don't think so. Paul, this is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me and my anxiety for all the churches. Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? And if I must boast, I will boast of the things that will show my weakness. Do you think this guy was completely mentally and physically and emotionally stable for his whole life? No. He ran hard, and then he was beheaded for the gospel. But he's the same guy who says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's the same guy who says, your grace is sufficient for me, for your power is made perfect in my weakness. There is a notion going around that Jesus himself isn't enough. And I want to tell you that he absolutely is. Look, he'll lead you to good people and to teachers and to mentors and to people that can help you. If you're struggling in faith, he will help you. That's why we have the church. That's why we have community. That's why we have other people in our lives. But all of that stuff without him, without the notion that he is a far surpassing treasure and without a notion of I'm going to follow him wherever it takes me, all of the other stuff without that is meaningless. With that, it's very powerful, right? And God does use many different avenues to help us. But whenever we go to other things and we remove Christ from the equation, that's essentially what the prosperity gospel is. It is a gospel without Jesus. Then we have nothing. We need to be zealous for the glory of God and live for it. That's, that's what it is, to be always on mission. And God has for us in that something that's far greater than anything that we could ever have in this life. Let's pray together. Let's, um, you know, and let's encourage you to just spend a little bit of time in prayer. You know, for some of us, maybe we're struggling right now. Maybe we're uncertain about our faith, maybe we're uncertain about, you know, just our relationship with God and and where we are. 
Let's spend some time just considering the gospel. That there is this incredible forgiveness and grace offered to us always in Christ. No matter what's happening, no matter what we're going through. You know, I encourage you, just simply ask honestly to uh, God for his presence and his help. You know, for others of us, maybe we feel a little bit aimless. Maybe we feel a little listless, like, what am I doing? You know, where am I going? Um, Would you pray that, that God would challenge your heart? he would make known the greatness of his glory that it's a worthy purpose to live for beyond work beyond family beyond any other thing would you pray even for for opportunities to to see them to see that God is always on mission that he's doing something right now that he has you exactly where you want where he wants you to be would you pray for courage to step into those things Pray for these things.